Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and two verses of Scripture that introduce to us the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. It's been 30 years since I preached on this subject, and I hope that I can make a quick review of it with you to appreciate your Bibles more, to read them more carefully, and to love every word that you find there. Anyone listening to this sermon should look at the website for this date and listen to the psalm for the first service today presented by Zach Pipkin from Psalm 119, verses 161 through 168, and hear the zeal of a young man for the words of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's a doctrine that we believe contained in those verses, that the Bible, being the Scriptures of God, was given by God's inspiration. And look at it, what it goes on to say about inspired Scripture. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Give me a Christ-called, ordained bishop who believes and loves the King James Bible, and he doesn't need anything else. That the man of God, that is speaking about a minister, this is a pastoral epistle. We have three pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. This is not talking about godly men. This is talking about the man of God who is to give himself to the study of God's Word and the preaching of it. And it goes on to charge him with preaching it in the second verse of the fourth chapter. But all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God's ministers may be perfect and furnished for all matters that they have to deal with by inspired Scripture. The combination of God calling a man and God giving that man His will and words in His book is a wonderful combination. And we never want to lessen it as to what it says here, that He may be perfect, complete, truly furnished unto all good works. He can teach doctrine. He can reprove when you're wrong. He can correct He can instruct in righteousness because the Word of God gives us all those things to do. And then he can preach the Word. The job description of a real minister is three words long, and it's in the second verse of the fourth chapter. Preach the Word. Don't preach commentaries. Don't preach your thoughts. Don't preach stories. Preach the Word. In Job 32, Job sat around for many chapters. Elihu sat around for many chapters in the book of Job, while Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, debated about why the evil events had come into Job's life. Elihu got angry, and he said, Days should speak. Older men should speak first before younger men, but I have waited around, and none of you could answer Job. Therefore, I'll give you my opinion. Aged men are not always wise. But there is a spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. And so Elihu was an inspired man. But you can be like Elihu because you have God's inspiration in writing. And so we can be very thankful for that. Look at Exodus chapter 31. One of a number of places we could turn about Scripture in the other Testament. Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, 
Two tables of testimony. Tables of stone written with the finger of God. Some scripture has been written in stone. Have you ever heard the expression, written in stone? Where do you think it came from? It is an expression for the finality and the absolute assurance that you can have of something being true. It's written in stone. What was written in stone? The Ten Commandments were written in stone. I could turn you to a number of verses like this. Would you like to have two tables of stone carved out by God where He wrote with His finger and engraved the Ten Commandments on them? Would, that, would you like to have that? They kept that in the Ark of the Covenant and no one ever got to look at it. But you know what you have? You have two testimonies of exactly what was on those two stones. In Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments are given in two places. You have two witnesses. You know more than anyone in Israel knew except what they had memorized from Moses' mouth. They had not seen it, but you have it in writing. When you open this Bible, do you treat it, and I don't mean so much the thing, but the words in it, as the words of God, once written in stone, kept in the Ark of the Covenant for 1,500 years as God's words. You have them in your Bibles because God inspired your Bibles and put there what was on those stones. I hope you want to be like Elihu. I love the expression written in stone now. Just to think about the fact that God wrote in stone and we have what He wrote in stone. That's the appreciation of inspiration. A few thoughts to think about what the Bible can do for the man of God, what the Bible can do for you, that you have the privilege of knowing what was inside the Ark of the Covenant because it's in those two chapters of your Bible. Now when we say inspiration, what do we mean? Let's define the term of this theological word that is found in the Bible. You know, it's in the Bible there in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and it's in the Bible in Job chapter 32 and verse 10. The English word inspire, in, spire, in, is from a Latin word, in. Okay? And sparer is from a, the Latin word, means to breathe. So inspiration means breathing in. To be inspired is to be breathed into in a literal sense. In a figurative sense, the word inspiration means to infuse a thought or feeling into someone or thing as if by breathing, or to animate or actuate by some mental or spiritual influence, to inspire. So the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and you could say all Scripture is God-breathed, because God breathed it into men, God actuated them and moved them, and we're going to define this more carefully in the moments to come, but I want you to think about the word inspiration. It means God-breathed. And so Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture God breathed into men and they wrote down what you have in your laps. And we should be so thankful for this book. Zach was thankful for it. We want to be thankful for it. I appreciate your zeal for the words of God. Are we ever going to drag him out of Psalm 119? We're going to have to give him 22 opportunities for the 22 sections of 8 verses that make up that chapter. Because it's all about the words of God and they're all exalting Scripture. The action of inspiring is given to God. What did Elihu say in Job 32 and verse 10? Who giveth man inspiration? 
the inspiration of the Almighty. And in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God that breathes in. It is God that gives and reveals and transmits truth to us that we in turn are able to read off these pages because He gave them were those words to 40 men that wrote them down for us. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, where hopefully you read last evening. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. I'm thankful that in 1984 and 1983, the year leading up to when I was ordained, the Lord convinced me, convicted me, and impressed me with this 19th verse and the first few words so thoroughly I can only tell you that he just got a hold of me with the more sure word of prophecy. And listen, for a man that's about to be ordained and your job description is preach the word, I better have a word to preach. There are so many competing versions out there. I'm thankful for God convincing me and us and others around us of the King James Bible. But notice in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy where the Apostle Peter compares the written Scriptures to having heard God's voice from the excellent glory when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus Christ, Elijah, Moses, and James and John. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. And this is to us all right now. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. If you take heed to the things of Scripture like Joel gave thanks for earlier in this assembly, you do well. If you want to do well in your life, take heed to what Scripture says about every part of your life. And how should you do it? As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. God has left us in a blinded world, but He has given us the light and lamp of His Word to light our way until the day dawn. There's a day coming when there's going to be no more darkness and the day star arise in our hearts. There's going to be a day when we're adoring the Lord Jesus Christ from our hearts as He makes His appearance according to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture. So now we know what Peter was talking about. When he said we have also a more sure word, it's the Scripture of verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Private interpretation means an individual, unique, separate interpretation of God's Word. We should never arrive at something that is not backed up with the rest of Scripture. It should not be alone, private. Alone, individual, unique, separate. That would be private interpretation from the rest of it. Because all of Scripture should fit together to teach the same truth for this reason. For, here's the explanation, why you can't ever have a private interpretation. For the prophecy... What is the prophecy here? The revelation of God in the Scriptures. The word prophecy does not always mean foretelling the future. The word prophecy means revealing God's will, revealing God's words. More times than it means foretelling the future in the Bible. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, that is, the Scriptures did not come in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They spake, they wrote, they spake, and someone else wrote the pages of Scripture. About 40 of them. Over hundreds of years, and we have the Word of God. It's a wonderful thing. It all fits together. We can't end up with individual or unique interpretations because there's only one author to this book. There's 40 writers, there's 40 secretaries, but there's only one author. 
And it is the Lord God, our Father in heaven, that gave us Scripture. That's the definition of inspiration. It's God breathed in, God moved men by the Holy Ghost, that the words they spake were God's words because He moved them to say those words. More to be said. The necessity of inspiration. If the Bible's words came by the will of man, then it's not Scripture. We don't want the will of man. You don't want to know what I think. We want to know what God thinks together. Because here it says, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Peter just didn't decide one day, you know what, Paul's been writing epistles, and I want to be cool like Paul, so I'm going to write two epistles and call them 1 Peter and 2 Peter. God, the Holy Ghost, moved Peter. God, the Holy Ghost, moved James. Move Paul. Paul wrote lots of epistles, but bless his name, that's another subject. That is the preservation of Scripture. Why all the epistles that Paul wrote, we only have these. We know that he wrote an epistle to the Laodiceans because he wrote the Colossians and said, I'd like you to read the epistle that I wrote to the Laodiceans, and I would like them to read the epistle that I've written to you. Well, where is the epistle to the Laodiceans? God left it in a wastebasket somewhere because we didn't need it. He had communicated everything he wanted in the epistles we have. Now the Roman Catholics write me on a monthly basis and tell me, why don't you submit and come back to your mother church because we gave you your Bible. Now what they're referring to are the church councils that took place in 397 A.D. and 400 A.D. in Carthage, North Africa. But that is 330 years too late because Peter was already writing in 2 Peter chapter 3, about our beloved brother Paul and the scriptures that he hath written. Right. Isn't that something they want to tell us? They gave us the Bible because they, they find the canon of the New Testament's 27 books in 400. Well, Peter knew that in 70 A.D. and earlier. Because that which is perfect was coming around 70 A.D. when that which is in part would be done away. The necessity of inspiration. The Word of God and the Word of men are not the same thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul blessed the church of the Thessalonians because he said, when we came and preached to you, you did not receive our preaching as if it were the words of men, but as it is indeed and in truth, the words of God. And that's what we want. Do you know what you have in your hands? Do you know men that have, men have died for it? In the publication, translation, copying, duplication, transmission, and making available the word of God for you. And we treat it, we can treat it so lightly by foolishness and neglect, but we want to love it and know that every word is God's word. Can you, have you ever meditated on a verse and just delighted in each word that's there? The choice of words. Are, are beautiful. You know, right here, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Does the word majesty light you up when you look back at verse 16 and think about seeing the Lord Jesus Christ glorified? You know, they saw the Lord Jesus Christ tired, worn out, hungry, with dirty clothes, and needing to have His feet washed. They saw Him in His humility, but then they got to see Him glorified. And what's it called right here with one little word? We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. They saw that he was indeed a king. And it says the voice came to him from the excellent glory. You know, there's glory and there's glory. Then there is excellent glory. The presence of God. I I don't turn me anywhere you want. You can come up here and stab in this Bible. I'm going to find some word that will bless my heart. And I hope it will bless yours because they're all inspired by God for us. Amen. Let God be true, but every man a liar. 
when it comes to words. All we want is God's words. This is the doctrine of inspiration. The dependency of inspiration. Inspiration is proved by men that quote Bible verses from something like this. This is most interesting to me. Many people that believe in the inspiration of Scripture don't believe in the preservation of Scripture. But how do they prove the inspiration of Scripture? By quoting from a book that they assume is... Thank you. Isn't that sweet? Oh, they're in trouble. If you don't believe that God has preserved His Word, you don't have a sure foundation for anything. If you ask somebody, do you believe the Word of God is inspired? Yes, I do. Why do you believe that? Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But I thought you didn't believe in preservation. Why are you quoting Scripture? God's made foolish the wisdom of this world. Inspiration assumes preservation or inspiration has no value for us. If God only inspired the original autographs, as they like to call them, which they have never seen, nor have they ever been collated in a book, nor did anybody ever have a book made up of original autographs, if God only inspired those original writings by the apostles, and then he never preserved that inspiration to follow, then where do we have the words of God? All we have are man's best guesses about the words of God. But he, he not only inspired it, he preserved it. And you can catch people that say they don't believe in preservation by asking them to prove the doctrine of inspiration and they'll quote scripture because they assume preservation. The extent of inspiration. How far does it go when God inspired words? The natural inspiration is a theory. Some Christians believe this, liberal Christians indeed, that scripture was written by faithful and good men who were inspired only in the sense of any writer of genius or moral ability Who's inspired? You know, they would say Beethoven was inspired. They would say George Handel was inspired. And whether George Handel was inspired or not, we sure do enjoy the words of God that come through the the songs and choruses in the Messiah. But that is not how the Bible was inspired. That would be natural inspiration. That good and faithful men got all worked up and put down their words. And they were good words and they were godly words. But we want something far better than natural inspiration. We want God breathed into and moved and caused these words to arrive to us. That's the natural theory. Faithful and good men were only inspired in the sense that other geniuses are inspired to do something exceptional. Conceptual inspiration is a theory that Scripture was written when God gave thoughts or ideas to men, and they wrote those thoughts down in their own words. Now that sounds closer to the truth, doesn't it? God gave Paul a warm and fuzzy thought about Israel and the Gentiles, and he wrote Romans 11. Or any other chapter in the Bible. No, the Bible goes way beyond that, but I'm telling you what other men believe. That's conceptual inspiration. God gave them the concept. God gave them the idea in their minds, and then they put it down in their words, and so we end up with the Bible. The, another theory of inspiration, and this is much, much closer to the truth, is what an unusual university that is located nearby believes and teaches, and this is what many Bible colleges and seminaries teach, the plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible. It's a theory that plenary, that is all, verbal, that is words, are inspired by a direct act of God, but it lacks in any descriptive content as to how that actually occurs. It's called plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible, where plenary means all and verbal means the word, words, 
So it's all words were inspired by the direct act of God and we'll give them credit for saying that. But we're going to go beyond that because the Bible goes beyond that. That is too vague and too nebulous for us. We want to deal with words like the Bible does when it uses words like paper, ink, and pen. And uh, so just hold on for a second and some of you will know where I'm headed. True inspiration is understood by the doctrine and the example of Scripture about it. Scripture is called the voice of God in the Bible. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23, there's so many references that we could use. I want this to be a short review. 2 Samuel 23, 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. Now does that sound like a concept was given to David on his deathbed? That he just got a concept? The Spirit of the Lord spake by me. I was just His tool. His word was in my tongue. The Holy Spirit was speaking. He was just using my tongue. This is what the truth of the Bible is. Throughout the Bible as it talks about it. Look at Psalm 12. Psalm 12 and how it speaks about the words of God. Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. These aren't the words of men. It's not the concept of God. It doesn't say in Psalm 12, 6, the concept of the Lord is a pure concept. It says the words of the Lord are pure words. And we love the words of this book. All of them. The words were inspired. God breathed them into men so that we could have them. Heaven and earth shall pass away, Jesus said, but my words shall not pass away. He didn't say my concept would not pass away, but my words. The words of Scripture were given by God. Look at Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah. How did Jeremiah write the book of Jeremiah? How did he do it? We've been there before, and I hope you remember it. You all enjoyed it. This isn't the passage. This is just one other passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 30 and verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. Now inspiration gets pretty simple, doesn't it? When we look at expressions like that. When Jesus said that not one jot or one tittle shall fail from the law of God, until all be fulfilled, was he referring to concepts or vague ideas or vague notions when he said jot or tittle? Jot in Greek is the Hebrew jod, the smallest little letter of the Hebrew alphabet of 22 letters. The smallest one was jod. A tittle is a little tiny accent mark on letters. Not a jot or a tittle will fail from the law. God is, God cares about Every one of those little letters that make up the words that we understand in sentences and phrases that communicate understanding to us. Not a jot or a tittle. How much do you love your Bible? Are the commas of the Bible in the right place? Do the Jehovah's Witnesses think the comma is in the right place when Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. They moved the comma. And so that Jesus said to the thief today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise later because they believe in soul sleep. Are you with me? I'm not taking you there because I don't have time. Just by moving a comma. We believe that Jesus said, comma, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. 
Not that Jesus said today, comma, thou shalt be with me in paradise sometime. Oh, I want you to love the Word of God. Do you love the Jodes and the Tittles? You say, how do you, you never refer to the Hebrews, so how do you know about a Jode? Just go look at Psalm 119 in a real Bible. If you go look at Psalm 119 in a real Bible, the 22 sections of that Psalm representing the 22 ver- words, letters of the Hebrew alphabet are all there, shown for you, and their name is given. You say, what do you mean by a real Bible? Well, a Bible that contains what the scribes put in those Psalms. Like the superscription that comes before some of the Psalms. So we are concerned about Jodes, Tittles, letters, marks, punctuation, words, not concepts. So let's look at the method of inspiration. God moved men to speak or write the Scriptures. We read that in 2 Peter 1.21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is an obscure passage, but a delightful one. Ecclesiastes 12. Verse 10. Did Solomon write some scripture? He wrote the book of Proverbs. Anything else? Ecclesiastes. Anything else? The Song of Solomon. Three of the Bible's 66 books of the Divine Library. We have a Divine Library of God writing 66 books to us and combining it in a library called the Bible. Verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 12, the preacher, that is Solomon, sought to find out acceptable words. And that which was written was upright, even words of truth. Notice it's not ideas, themes, or concepts. It's words. The words of the wise, and he was the wise man, are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. Who is the one shepherd that gave the words that the masters of assemblies teach, preach, and explain? The Lord God is the one shepherd of Israel. And He gave the words that the masters of assemblies, when an assembly would be drawn together and the book is opened and words are read distinctly and the sense is given, it all comes from God who gave them. Given from one shepherd. Oh, Lord, we love Your Word. The cause was God. The instrument was men. So that the message was God's and not theirs because they were moved by God, the Holy Ghost. Moses wrote the words that God dictated to him. Look at Exodus and chapter 34. Exodus 34. I know we're turning a lot of pages, but I don't have stories to tell you today. Nothing else about Charles Linbaugh. Sorry. Nothing else about Cyrus the Persian. Just the words of the Lord God of heaven. Exodus 34 and verse 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words. For after the tenor of these words have I made a covenant with thee and with Israel. Now he uses the word tenor here, but he doesn't tell him, you write the tenor. He says, you write the words. Thank you, Lord. Look at Jeremiah 36. Here's the passage you were all hoping I would get to. I hope some of you were thinking this. Jeremiah 36. Because, see, we believe in a theory or a doctrine of inspiration that is usually made fun of by the conservative people in our city. 
they make fun of our doctrine of inspiration as the mechanical dictation theory. That men were nothing more than secretaries taking dictation and were mechanically writing down what God gave them. Do you know what I have to say in answer to that? Amen! Thank you, Lord! (laughs) Mechanical dictation theory? You mean to say that Paul and Peter were only mechanical secretaries writing down what God told them to write down? That is right! Call it mechanical? Call it dictation. I love that. God dictate. Can I prove that in the Bible? Now, it's not the word dictate, but it's a word that means dictate. It's my favorite psalm. It's Psalm 45, and David said, My heart is indicting a good matter. Go look up what the word indict means. My heart is dictating a good matter. Now, David already told us, The Holy Spirit spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. That was Psalm 40. We're not at Psalm 45. We're at Jeremiah 36. How in the world do we get Scripture by the mechanical dictation theory, as they call it? God gives the words and men write it down. And our God, as the author, is smart enough, wise enough, and providential enough that He can even bring through the words that He dictates, the personality, and the experiences, and the educational level of His writers. Amen. Because they were men that He chose and they were holy men and He moved the Holy Spirit inside them for His words through each of them. Amen. Jeremiah 36, and it came, verse 1, It came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, here's the instruction from the Lord, Take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. Everything that I have said to you, I want you to write down in the roll of a book. Somebody will say, well, how could he remember them? You need to go to John chapter 14, where God said the Holy Spirit will bring to your memory everything that I spoke to you. When God chooses prophets and apostles, depending on whichever testament you're talking about, he enables them to remember the things that he spoke to them. If God is able to speak to men from heaven, He can certainly help them remember those things that He spoke to them from heaven that should not surprise you when it comes to inspiration. Now in this particular chapter, we have the words that Jeremiah wrote down burned up. So we've lost the Word of God. And later, Baruch The secretary of Jeremiah was asked, what happened to the word of God? This is verse 17. They asked Baruch, saying, tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Now think about it. Jeremiah speaks words and Baruch writes them down. That's how scripture comes. That's how God told Jeremiah to write the book of Jeremiah. Then Baruch answered them. and He he wasn't altogether respectful, but... They were getting what they wanted to hear. A little sarcasm from him. Baruch answered them, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Where are you having a mental breakdown on how inspiration occurs and where the book of Jeremiah came from? Now when you read that, Baruch answered, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. 
Do you have a problem with the mechanical dictation theory of inspiration? I don't at all. That sounds about as mechanical and as dictating as it could possibly sound. That is how we got Scripture. Is that exciting to you? Do all of a sudden you like a man named Baruch? Jeremiah spoke all these things, all these words. No, I almost said that, that cursed word that starts with T and has an ing in it. Things. Words. God spoke words to Jeremiah. Jeremiah pronounced them with his mouth. That is the part of our bodies we use to pronounce. And Baruch wrote them with ink in the book. And so we have Scripture. Oh, thank you, Lord, for all these things you've shown us. We love Scripture. Look at uh, look at Psalm 45 and verse 1. I just mentioned it a moment ago. We're going to pass over it very quickly. I just want you to see it with your eyes so that you can appreciate some ink that was written in a book that has God's words. Psalm 45 and verse 1, My heart is indicting a good matter. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, David said in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 2, I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I'm just taking dictation. God's putting the words in me. I have them in my tongue. I can write them down or I can speak them, pronounce them with my mouth, and someone else can write them down with ink in a book. Did the Apostle Paul write his epistles? Or can you read some of Paul's epistles and at the end he will give credit to the secretary that wrote the words down with ink in a book after Paul pronounced them with his mouth? I, Tertius. You can find him. He wrote it down for Paul. That's how we got Scripture. This is inspiration. God breathed in. And listen, when God breathes, big things happen. The Red Sea goes back. It piles up on both sides because God breathed on it and blew with a little wind. And then He blows into men and they have His words in them. They pronounce them with their mouth. They're written down by secretaries. And we have the Word of God. Do you love Scripture? Amen. The whole point is, do you love Scripture? Right. Do you trust its words? Yes. Look at First Chronicles. Thank you, Lord, for lighting me up recently in working through the Samuels, Kings, and Chronicles with this particular passage. First Chronicles chapter 28. Oh, when you read the Bible, does the Lord light you up sometimes? Do you, do you land in a verse that you may have read five times, 50 times, you, and you knew it was good, and you knew it was true, but all of a sudden it's fresh and new and it just lights you up? Yep, yep, yep. What a book. First Chronicles 28. Now, David's telling Solomon how the temple has to be built. And it's rather complex. But all the intricate designs and vessels and utensils of the temple. All this, said David, First Chronicles 28, 19. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. I didn't have a blueprint to look at. And I didn't take designing classes in school. But the hand of the Lord was mighty upon me and caused me to give Solomon a blueprint for how that house was going to look. Right. Now that is pretty complex information being conveyed. Mm-hmm. All this. Because you got, you got to read the context. When he says all this, do you know what he's talking about? Some of the most intric- the most, one of the most magnificent buildings ever. I was lit up this week and last week and this week and last week and this week by David and Solomon and their obsession to make the house of the Lord, the temple of God, unbelievably beautiful. 
There's more expressions in these books of the Bible than just exceeding magnifical. Of course, exceeding magnificent sticks in your memory. It sticks in my mouth. I love those words. But they were obsessed about making it special. You need to read Solomon's obsession when he wrote Hiram, king of Tyre, and asked for the best craftsman you have. I want the best craftsman you have, and he better be able to work in this, 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 and this. And I want your trees because they're the best. And I want you to find the best marble. Because this palace isn't for men, it's for God. Right. And he says other things that are just wonderful. And you know, here is the blueprint for the temple of the Lord. And the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me. So there David is writing out while the Lord made him understand what he was writing, then he could hand. Have you ever seen a blueprint? of a major commercial construction project and the multi-pages of all the different things that are going in there, David handed that to Solomon. Where did it come from? The Lord's hand was upon me. God prepared holy men. Boy, did he prepare Moses. And he prepared David, and he prepared Jeremiah. Jeremiah didn't want to be a prophet, but God had called Jeremiah from his birth to be a prophet of the Lord. God had his hand upon Jeremiah from the very beginning. The result of inspiration leaves us with the words of God and not the words of men. It is harmonious throughout because it's only got one author. That one author took Moses and said, the words that I speak to you, write them down. He took Jeremiah, the words that I speak to you, write them down. He took John... Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. The things that you hear, write down. Moses, first books. John, last book. Jeremiah, middle book. It's all covered by the inspiration, and we believe in something that they can call mechanical dictation theory. What we understand by that is, I pronounced with my mouth, or he pronounced with his mouth, and I wrote down in ink the words in a book. And we have the words in a book. So we have a book that is dependable for detail to an incredible degree as our one-word arguments show. Do you know why we have one-word arguments? What is a one-word argument in our definition? It means that in the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, or Peter took an Old Testament word, they're called one-word arguments, one word, and made an argument from it. Right. I've already used one today. Did you hear me? There's sometimes a reason for the things I say. Sometimes. Stephen talked about the Old Testament going away. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. In that he calleth it new. Where did that word new come from? Jeremiah chapter 31. An Old Testament use of the word new. In that he calleth this covenant of Jesus Christ new. Then the other one of Moses is old. And if it's old, then bye-bye. One verse, one word, one argument, because God gave the words and we can depend on every single one of them. But what if the word is italicized? If the word is italicized in your Bible, what does that mean? The King James translators were proving to you that they were honest men by telling you there is not a word-for-word translation from the Hebrew or the Greek for this word. We had to interpolate it by our understanding of those languages. It is a helper word in English, but we had to use it to fill out the sense. It is not there in Hebrew or Greek 
in the word form. It's there in the meaning and the sense of how that word is to be understood. Are you with me? I'm not going to spend any more time on it. Does the Bible have a one-word argument from an italicized word? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus Christ argued from I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that when He said those words to Moses 400 years after Abraham died, for Him to use the present tense I am about Abraham meant that Abraham's spirit was still existing somewhere and God was still His God because God is the God of the living, not of the dead. But that word am is Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 and it's italicized. How does that get you excited? I can't sit still when I find something like that in the Bible. I run around the house and I punch the air and I shout out to the Lord how much I love Him and I'm a nothing. I'm a sinful scum. But He deserves so much more than I can ever give Him. And thank you, Dad, for what you said today after we have done all of His will. All we can say is that we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. But do you love Scripture? And do you love its individual words? You know, if we looked at some considerations of inspiration... It's magnified above God's own name. Zach said that to me this morning before we even got started. That's Psalm 138 and verse 2. When God inspires a book, He magnifies it above His own name. Psalm 138 and verse 2. That's how high God lifts it up. It is personified as God. Scripture saith, when really it was God speaking. In Galatians chapter 3, it is forever settled in heaven. Psalm 119, it is more sure than the voice of God. It has nothing forward or perverse in it. It cannot be broken according to John 10.35. It's the judge of truth and error. It works effectually if believed. Because 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where Paul praised the Thessalonians, because you received our preaching, not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And the rest of that verse, which effectually worketh in you that believe. This is a spiritual book. And when you believe this book, these words of God, they work effectually. It's necessary for man to live spiritually. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Luke 4.4 4. It's scientifically, historically, prophetically, geologically, astronomically, and any other way you want to measure the Word of God, accurate to an amazing degree. And by an amazing degree, I didn't use to an infinite degree because we're not capable of measuring anything to an infinite degree. All we can measure it to is an amazing degree. And it's amazing. Implications of inspiration. Paraphrases are not Scripture. When you go into a... When you're thinking about... How am I going to word this? I don't believe any of you are going to go to a Bible bookstore this week and buy a new Bible that's not a King James Bible. But when you hear about these new Bibles and you hear the word paraphrase, what does the word paraphrase mean? It means that a guy read a verse and then put the verse in his own words. Does that irritate you a little bit just to hear me define it? It lights me up a different way. A paraphrase. The Living Bible. Who was alive in 1970? Who remembers the Living Bible? Billy Graham popularized that little piece of junk. That's a little novel written by Kenneth Taylor, who was a businessman in Chicago and on the train to and from work every day. He would read the American Standard Version of 1901, he would read a verse and then put it into his own words. He'd read a verse and put it into his own words. What Does that bother you? 
I want it to bother you. I want in the future of this church, children, does that bother you? Joshua, does that bother you? We want God's words. We don't want Kenneth Taylor's words about God's words. That makes his book a novel. How about the message that came out in 2002, 11 years ago? That's the purpose-driven man who promoted that Bible. That's Eugene Peterson who wrote in idioms. It's so different from the living Bible. You've got to read the message. He just blew it up into a novel about a novel about the Bible. It's just a mess. It's called a paraphrase. They know it's a paraphrase. They call it a paraphrase. They know what it means. I read a testimony in preparing for this message by Kenneth Taylor. Oh, I can't remember right now whether it was Kenneth Taylor or Eugene Peterson. Kenneth Taylor did the Living Bible. Eugene Peterson did the message. It may have been Eugene Peterson. He said, when I go into a church and anyone stands up in the pulpit and reads a verse out of the message and says, these are the words of the Lord, my skin crawls. Oh, my skin crawls too, that you would even let that thing be published and call it a Bible and let people assume it's a Bible. He knows what he's done is wrong. Do you think he's going to withdraw that thing from public consumption? Dynamic equivalent translations are not technically paraphrases, but they take liberty like that. Dynamically equivalent, meaning we look at the words in Hebrew or Greek and we come up with an equivalent expression in English that's dynamic. It represents all the nuances of the Hebrew and the Greek, but it's in English instead of translating the words. That's the NIV. That's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. They admit that they're dynamic equivalent translations. They're not equivalent translations where they translate word for word like the King James Bible does. And when it can't translate word for word, it puts in an italicized word, a little helper word, to help make the sense of the word that it's translating, which is necessary in every language. What I'm talking about with paraphrases or these dynamic equivalent translations is a much greater degree of liberty of taking the words, getting a thought, and then putting them back in English. And if you read the message, you'll know that the words of God have disappeared. It's all the words of men about the words of God. Then you don't have one-word arguments. Then you don't have the same authority. Then you don't have God spoke, Jeremiah heard, pronounced with his mouth, and the words were written down in ink in a book. When first hearing someone complain about the these and the thous, might you agree with them that if we could get rid of the these and the thous, the Bible would be easier to understand? I hope you won't. I've taught you before. It's on our website. Why dumb down the King James Version from the Hebrew and the Greek and the second person pronouns? The King James Version with its these and thous is more accurate than any other English translation because the Hebrew and the Greek have the distinction between singular and plural in the second person pronouns. See, we just have you. If we're talking to one person in the second person or we're talking to ten people, we say you. But in the Bible, it's ye for plural or thee for singular. It's more accurate. And they want to make fun of these and thous. But God ordained to use Hebrew and he ordained to use Greek. And both of them have that distinction. And high English, which is the language this Bible is translated in. Men didn't speak in this language when this Bible was written this way. 
it was written in high English. And high English has that distinction of the these and yees. If it's a T pronoun, it's singular. If it's a Y pronoun, it's plural. That's, a, that's an incredible value in reading through the Bible and understanding how things are being expressed. If, you, if we alter these, these, and thous and get rid of them, we dumb our Bible down to modern English. We take away the accuracy of the Hebrew and the Greek that the Lord's given us in our King James Bibles, and it takes away the reverence that the Bible has with these and thous in it because these and thous separated from the common language that we speak to each other. We don't want to speak about God in the language that we use with each other. We love it to be an elevated language which God's given us in our wonderful Bibles. Amen. What's the conclusion? Look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. What a text. Amen. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. We should not exercise ourselves in matters too high for us. There are secret things the Lord's doing in the earth. There's billions of them. There's an untold infinite number of them. And they're all His. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The words of the living God are in the Bible, and that is what God has given to us as a heritage for us and our children and our children's children. The words of this law to know what we ought to do in our lives. And the secret things belong to God our Father who has foreknown us from eternity. And He is going to arrange all those things for our best benefit. We just need to take care of business at home. And that is what has been written. We can take rules of study like 1 Corinthians 2.13 where it says comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And when you look at that verse, the things that are under description there are the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth. So when we find words in the Bible, and we want to know what that word means, look elsewhere in the Bible where that word is used, and the Holy Spirit will give you a definition to give you understanding. When we find the word salvation, the Holy Spirit has taught us that there's at least five phases of salvation. There's actually more if you want to get into the carnal, natural salvations of God delivering us in childbirth and all sorts of things. It's like that, or salvation from an army, or salvation from thirst or hunger. You know, that's another category, but the, the Holy Spirit has taught us that right. because they're God's words. There's no word in our King James Bible. We believe it by the faith, fruit, facts, and fools, that this is God's word and every word in it. God has put there for a specific purpose. We don't want to alter a single one of them because it will corrupt the internal integrity of a book, all of which its words are tied together by one author, so that we can compare those words in it. Not a word. We can preach based on Nehemiah 8.8. So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly and gave the sense. Because we have God's words. We can rightly divide the word of truth because God's words, that if He uses them, and in this time He uses the word, it's it's talking about this thing. But this time He uses the word, it's talking about this thing then we can divide. The Holy Spirit has two senses of this word. Sometimes it's this. Sometimes it's this. We tell by the context around that word. Just like you did in third grade spelling bees. Teacher, please use it in a sentence. That gave you the context to know what word was being used. What good is inspiration unless you're going to read the Bible as God's very words to you? Right. What does it matter? You have a holy book that you get to take home today 
It is so easily obtainable. It's so wonderful. It has so much fruit tied to it. It says such glorious things in it. It has all the instruction for every part of your life. There isn't any part of your life this Bible doesn't deal with. There is no part of the past that you need to know about that it doesn't deal with. It's got Alexander the Great, Cleopatra, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got the future told to you of what's going to happen. We're going to get a new heaven, a new earth, and all the creatures of this world are now under the bondage of corruption of sin. It's going to be lifted. This book tells it all. It's got Proverbs. It's got philosophy. It's got history. It's got songs. It's got apocalyptic literature. It's got doctrinal argumentation. What a library. Do you love it? Do you read it? Do you appreciate it? This church can never back away from this book. This church can never back away from the specific doctrine of inspiration that God spoke the words and men wrote them down. And if that makes it mechanical or if that makes it dictation, so be it. God spoke the words and men wrote them down and we have the words of God to this day. Never let anyone in this church compromise the Bible's words in any way to reduce Bible integrity and the integrity of Scripture. Job would say that God's words, the words of his mouth, were more important to him than his necessary food. Are the words of God's mouth way up there in your life? Do you love his words? Do you love getting apart with no distraction and slow down and instead of reading for quantity, read for quality and delight yourself in the fatness of the book that God has inspired for us. Man shall not live by bread alone. You will make sure that you have eaten several times today. But man doesn't live by that bread. The best life, the abundant life, the full life, is by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Every word. Isn't it interesting that in Luke 4.4, your King James Bible is the only modern version that has those words in it? Their versions say, man shall not live by bread alone. Do you know what your version says? But by every word of God. Now if I had been taking away verses, I wouldn't want it to be said that I needed every word of God to live by either. But I'm thankful for this Bible. I'm thankful that it's inspired. It's God breathed. It's God wrote me a book. The words were pronounced. They were written down in ink. And so I have on paper in ink the words of the living God. Do you love this Bible? Right. You're going to see a proverb go out to the world at 4 o'clock this afternoon. We're going to do our best to show the world that we believe every word of God. We're going to do our best to explain that verse from Proverbs chapter 29 for Monday, tomorrow. I hope that you'll pray for it. I hope that you'll read it. I hope that you'll read your Bibles. I hope that you'll read the commentary. May the Lord bless each one of you in our church that we will be a Bible-based church, Bible-based families, Bible-based believers. And we'll love the book that He's given us. The more sure word of prophecy. Amen. Amen.